I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. I am outside, walking along in my hiking boots in the county of Norfolk, East Anglia, UK. It's the middle of May 2021. It's quite cold, certainly a lot colder than it was this time last year, if I recall. Gambling in the increasingly tall grass is my dog friend Rosie. We're here for a bonus episode because technically the podcast is on hiatus until later in the year. But if you recall, at the end of the last episode with Lee Mack, I did say that there was a possibility I might be dropping the odd episode now and then before the next run recommences properly. This is one such episode. That's a seagull. Hello, seagull. A lone seagull. Bonus episode, yes. Buckles checks his notes on his phone. Right, I'm calling this a bonus episode of the podcast because despite containing a highly entertaining conversation with my old friend Joe Cornish, it has a significant promotional aspect to it And I want to be upfront about that. Yeah? Transparency. First thing I'm promoting is the paperback publication of Ramble Book, which is uh, a a sort of a memoir that I wrote. Have I mentioned it before? Well, just to remind you, this is a book uh, I wrote that came out last year in hardback. It's amazing. And the main themes include growing up, falling in love, trying to figure out your parents. Well... Not your parents, my parents, well, mainly my dad. Getting into music and films, personal and professional failures, worries about money, class, death, and feeling conflicted by David Bowie's output in the 1980s. There is, as well, don't forget, an audiobook version, read by me, featuring specially made jingles for each chapter, and an hour-long exclusive conversation with Joe at the end. Because, of course, my friendship with Joe Cornish is an important part of Ramble Book. But, uh, hey, look, we've covered all that in the audiobook uh, convo, me and Joe. And in this conversation today, this is all new stuff that, uh, I mean, you know, yes, some of it we will have touched upon before. But this is an all new conversation. And uh, I suppose... It gives you a glimpse of what you might expect from a Ramble Book sequel. And that gives us an opportunity to talk about our working relationship with what I would call unprecedented candor. Okay? The other thing that I am promoting in this bonus episode is my auction of incredible pop cultural memorabilia in aid of MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders. Currently, their volunteers are providing much-needed medical assistance all over the world, especially, sad to say, in India, which is being hit so hard by COVID, and in Israel and Gaza, where the fighting is affecting so many people so badly. If you're listening to this podcast sometime between May the 14th and May the 24th, 2021, you can browse and bid for items in that auction now. You will find a link to my eBay page in the description of this podcast. You right, Rose? Or you can go to the front page of my blog, adam-buxton.co.uk, where you will also find uh, details. And if you have no interest whatsoever in bidding for items, 
of incalculable cultural significance, then please consider making a donation to MSF if you're in a position to do so. Thanks, either way. And, final thing, please come and join me for an hour of waffling about the items in the auction and maybe a bit of Q&A on a live YouTube stream next Tuesday, the 18th of May, 2021, at 7.30pm. You can expect to see rare and exclusive pictures, clips and reminiscences of The Adam and Joe Show, my days filming on Hot Fuzz and working with Radiohead. We've heard all those stories before, though. Rosie, no, you haven't. Anyway, I'm going to be digging up some bits that have never seen the light of day. Ooh, that reminds me of those small creatures I killed and then buried and then dug up again. Rosie, what have I told you about being macabre? Sorry. All right, back at the end for a small slice of goodbye waffle and a mention of another exciting film project that I was recently involved with. But right now with Joe Cornish, who I spoke to via the Zoom uh, last week. 6th of May, I think it was. Here we go. it's very exciting that your uh, book's coming out in paperback because that's not a that's not like a done deal is it not a gibbon it's not a gibbon no <laughs> it is sometimes a book like like when we did the adam and joe book right very famous book yes i was thinking oh they'll do a lavish hardback edition and then when that sells to the aficionados in large numbers six months later they'll release it in paperback you know for the less wealthy fans but no, they decided to put it straight into paperback, didn't they? Whereas like other comedy series like The League of Gentlemen, like proper comedy series, had proper hardback comedy books that were just their scripts even. I know, but that's a slightly different thing. Like special yeah. comedy books, they don't really exist comedy books in the same way anymore because you used to have a show like The Young Ones, for example, and then you'd have the spin-off comedy book and it was very much a throwaway affair. Like How to Be a Complete Bastard, that was never a hardback, was it? I don't remember. All I remember is that I was a bit disappointed when the Adam and Joe book went straight to the cheap seats. But um, suffice to say that it's uh, impressive that Ramble Book came out in hardback and now is coming out in paperback. Just so that every member of the public is able to wallow in its wonders. That's right. And that's why... It has a beautiful redesigned cover. Ooh. Helen Green, who did the artwork for the, uh, well, she does the artwork for the podcast and she did the illustrations for the hardback of Ramble Book. She's done a whole new cover that looks like, well, it's supposed to look a bit like an 80s film poster, a bit like the Labyrinth film poster. Ooh. And it has Javid hovering in the background, as well as a big picture of my dad. And you and Louis are prominently featured on the front as well. Yes. That'll boost sales. Well, that's the idea. Mm. We're hoping that will boost sales. Yeah. It was a bit of a problem, though, because, you know, part of it is about my childhood, my experience of growing up in the 80s. Mm. So there's uh, a lot of terrible white males in it. Yes. And not so many of any other kind of person. Mm. I mean, there's the only women in there are old girlfriends and passing mentions of Sigourney Weaver, perhaps. So I've put them all on the cover. Yeah. Well, maybe you can market it towards people who are more right wing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I want. Big adverts in the right-wing press. <laughs> Enjoy the good old racist, sexist days with Adam Buxton. Maybe a quote from Nigel Farage. <laughs> Have you got quotes on there? No, I went qu quoteless. 
did you think about having quotes on there? Because I, I gave you some, didn't I? I took a stand against quotes. I gave you some for the hardback. You did. But you didn't use any. I thought maybe you might use one. No, I think they no. they might put quotes from some of the reviews on the back. I'm not sure. But quotes. Uh, I wish it wasn't necessary to have quotes. And I certainly didn't want to do the whole business of emailing every single famous or mildly famous person I've ever met yeah, and asking that's them to. terrible, isn't it? No, I don't want to do that. Who would be um, the best person to have a quote from on the front of my book? Curry. Edwina. <laughs> Edwina Curry would be really good. That would really, especially after what you said about the content being a little bit, you know, a little bit. Retrograde. Little bit retrograde, old-fashioned. Old-fashioned. Nostalgic. Just, I'd like to point out at this point, listeners, that it is not in that way retrograde. It is forward. No. Look, it just happens to be the reality of my life is that I am a white male man, uh, you grew up in a segregated community, <laughs> grew up in, in an all-male <laughs> environment, segregated community. Listen, are you? Well, the other thing I'm curious about Go is: on. Are you going to release a paperback version of the audiobook with like thinner <laughs> audio and like cheaper versions of all the musical stings read by a sound-alike? Yeah, that's a good idea. Who would do it? Mm, I don't know. Like, who's the sort of Poundland version of Adam Buxton? Man, that's a tricky question because I'm the Poundland version <laughs> of so many other people. Well, you just maybe uh, hold a competition for your listeners and see who did the best Adam Buxton impression. It's got to be someone middle-aged, inoffensive, warm. Mm -hmm. Schofield, you're describing Philip Schofield. Yeah, Schofield would be great. I bet he'd read it really nicely. Schofield, he's expensive though. You'd never get him. No, that's true. I mean, he's massive. But listen, I think you have a you have a competition with your listeners and the one who does the best Adam Buxton impression re-records the audiobook and also does all the stings. Mm. Have to make sure they were like less good. And then you release it at, like what's the price differential between the hardback book and the paperback book? I think the what was like that? a tenner, is it like a ten pounds cheaper or something? No, less than that. I think it's probably more like about five five or six quid cheaper. Okay, so maybe like it's got to be like say thirty five percent less good. Yeah. The the just the not the it'd be the same words, but just printed on the audio equivalent of lower quality paper. Yeah, more compressed audio. Yeah, that's a good yeah. idea. Also, they could mispronounce a lot of it. Yes. I'm listening to an audio book at the moment mm. that uh, it's a really great book. I'm not going to say the name of it though because the fellow reading it, who is he's doing a good job most of the time. But he's got some very odd ideas about pronunciation. And he also does a strange thing where he'll just pause in random places mm. in a really odd way. So, like, I'm going to read from my book right now. Um, Louis was more intelligent than most people in our year. Despite having been... I know what this book is. It's Louis Threw's autobiography. And he's writing about himself. <laughs> Is that what it is? No, I know what it is. This is from my book. Despite having been accelerated from the year below, a fact that sometimes made me a little wary of him. He literally does that, this guy who is reading this audio book I'm listening to right now. Also, check out these mispronunciations. Uh, today, he said, instead of enviable, he said enviable. Hmm. Enviable? I'd stop the recording and go back and re-record that if someone said that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had a producer on this thing. It's a big, important, clever book. Anyway, another mm. one was, instead of saying placate, he says placate, like placenta. That sounds wrong as well. Instead of draftsman, he says droughtsman. What? Droughtsman? That's absurd. I mean, what was the producer doing? Just smoking loads and loads of drugs can i ask you some more questions about the paperback book <laughs> yeah man does it have a preview chapter of ramble book two well to whet the appetite yeah it should do that's i thought we could do that in this conversation excellent i mean uh, ramble book two is not 100 percent a done deal mm. but uh it is a possibility but that's okay, though, because there's really there's nothing better than something that's sort of promised mm -hmm. but never turns up. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. Just saying, yeah, 
haven't really thought it through. <laughs> I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, no, that's one of the worst things there is. No, but it's like legendary films that are never made. Oh, I see. You know, like Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon. Uh, and then you get a big, co- or, or Jodorowsky's Dune. Okay. And then you get a documentary and a big coffee table book. You mean in the cultural scraps. sphere, yes. Well, it's all potential and no disappointment. You know what I mean? Yes. It's all, you always imagine the best possible version. Uh, and it's never sullied by the... Dreary reality. <laughs> by the actual existence of something disappointing. Yes. So talk about Ramble Book 2, have a sample chapter, sketches, discuss it, be working really hard on it, talk about it a lot in forthcoming podcasts, and never never do it. You know what? I've actually written some ideas down. One of the main uh, things that people said to me when they wrote to me about Ramble Book 1, mm. I got a few comments from people who had read Ramble Book, loved it. They loved it. Mm. it Can was- I just interrogate what you've said so far a little? Yeah, go on. How are you receiving these messages? Le- letters? Letters and emails via my agent. And they thought it was incredible. But one of the things they mm. said they wished there was more of was stuff with you and I, mm-hmm. you and me. You and me is you, the right one you, there. You and mine. You and my. Mm. My and yo. Did did you look at the reviews on Amazon? No. Didn't read any reviews. Honestly. Yeah, no, I, I tried to remove all that stuff from my yeah. life. Don't. Did you look at the reviews on Goodreads? No, no reviews. Haven't read any oh. reviews. Uh, I've only received feedback yes, from other human beings. <laughs> <laughs> Via letter. That's a good way to do it, man, because you're unlikely to actually make the effort of writing to you via your agent or publisher unless you really love it or you're so angry about it it's entertainingly ridiculous yeah that's my theory if if people had a massive i mean i'm absorbing generally where the areas of potential criticism may be Mm. perhaps a little bit too much bowie in there right how are you getting those vibes just sort of psychically walking through the streets of norwich in the hubbub well no i can decode it from the things people say in their letters and their emails but People did wish that there was more stuff about uh, you and me being on TV in the 90s. Mm. So obviously the structure that suggests itself for Ramble Book 2, rather than going through the 80s, this time we would go through the 90s. And obviously that was the decade that you and I uh, managed to get a TV show on Channel 4. And uh, our friendship underwent a, a transformation or at least it was put under a certain amount of strain. So that's one question. Mm. How honest should I be about some of the more tense times? What are you afraid of? Uh, a lawsuit from Jay Corn and Associates. <laughs> what do you think? Like, what's the darkest corner? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's anything too bad. I mean, I don't know. I've forgotten most of it. No, but I mean, you don't... Would you rather... Because I remember when we were doing the DVD, the Adam and Joe DVD in mm. 2004, uh, I was editing a, a kind of behind-the-scenes story of Adam and Joe, it was called. And there was a sequence in there... There was a couple of sequences that, that I'd edited together where we were just being bad-tempered with each other. And you said... What's the point of including this? I think that it doesn't, you don't really need it. And I felt like I, I'm always drawn to that sort of stuff because I want to, I've got a sort of confessional urge to share mm. that sort of thing and confess to the times when maybe I behaved badly or there was tension. I want to yes. share it. Anyway, you made that point and I, uh, I, I left one little section in there, but I did remove an, another one. And it was definitely a good thing to have removed it because it would have just been a bit weird and brought the whole thing down. So I guess I'm worried about doing that. It seems to me you've got a very good editor. Yes. And that he or she would probably do that job for you. Because in the end of the day, you don't want to repeat beats. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want just to have the same story beat, so to speak. So if you found the nugget that expressed all that and wrote it really well, which I'm sure you would then... You wouldn't need to dwell on it that much. As long as it was fair and reflected me in a very good light and you in a poor light, which would <laughs> represent the um, actuality of the proceedings 
then that would be fine. That would be fine. Yeah, okay. That would be fine. But yeah, no, I see that you're listening to your podcast. You're on a journey of uh, self-discovery. And um, I can see that that would be uh, interesting station stops on your journey. Okay, good. The next station stop is self-loathing 1998. <laughs> Please make sure you remove all your baggage from... <laughs> from your life. From your life. <laughs> the next station stop is a passive-aggressive <laughs> argument with Joe about Skittles versus <laughs> M&M's. I found a, a diary entry I wrote when we were on the radio on XFM. 2005 Ooh. and we got in a tiz with each other do you remember that i don't no remind me like when we used to be on xfm you would read the messages that were coming in on the computer while i was sat on the oh, other yes, side of, of the I desk remember this yeah and you didn't like me reading out the provocative ones no people that were angry <laughs> yeah yeah and in between in between um like when we were playing music, sometimes you would say, wow, look, check this one out. And you'd read it out and it would be just people saying, like one of them was, I still remember it. Why don't you infantile C words shut up and play some music? Yeah. I mean, I have to say that that is a that was a refrain that continued at uh, BBC Six Music, even when the show was very popular, because a lot of people just tune in to hear music and they don't like people talking. Yes. But no, I remember you getting very annoyed at that. But that would be fine. I think this is all fine. It's so long ago. Yeah. I think it's all fine. I think you should really get in there. All right. I think it would be exciting. It would be like Hunter S. Thompson or, <laughs> you know, one of those scurrilous tell-all books. Um, that's what you want from a book like that, like the Motley Crue book or a really good rock biography. You don't want the anodyne version, do you? Wow, this is great. I mean, you are you are absolutely <laughs> pushing me no, to... I, I did say earlier that as long as the it reflects really poorly on you and brilliantly on me. All right, I'll bear that in mind. That's the caveat. That's good. Because already I've started to write some of it. Like, I wrote about Titanic and what that meant in terms of our relationship. And then that was another point of conflict when... We did that interview with Time Out. Do you remember? And Time Out yeah. phoned me up when when Titanic was going to be broadcast on Film 4, when Film 4 launched. Mm. And it was on their first night of programming. They showed yeah, yeah. The, the full director's cut of your brilliant Titanic toy movie. Yeah, brilliant. But uh, Time Out phoned me up, because that was back in the day when we kind of were scrupulous about never saying like who did what on the show it was always like we 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 did everything together and um they phoned me up and i think they quoted me as saying i a couple of times rather than we which we always tried yeah. to do and then you read it back and you were very upset because really yeah. you I'm did getting all, upset now just hearing it again you did almost all the work on titanic yeah so you furious. phoned me I'm up getting and furious and you said, what the fuck have you said now? Oh. Like I was always saying terrible things. What That would have been pent up rage. Yeah, I thought that, that would be a good little spicy <laughs> nugget. It's just like, uh, yeah, pent up rage, like a little, um, a little uh, hot, hot steam geezer <laughs> <laughs> over a volcano. Little rage. When you're just having a little stroll. Rage fart. Across the arid, arid tundra. And suddenly a hot geezer <laughs> sprouts up your back, your your backside. But um, I think this is fine. I have to say, like you can test drive some of these uh, points of antagonism and and see whether I've got any anything left in my system, you know. And there's nothing. I that's fine. You've told that story, in fact. I think in your either in your podcast or in one of your I talked to Richard Herring about it. Speeches about yourself. Yeah. Um, on other podcasts. people's podcasts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that frankly all merge into one long <laughs> self-aggrandizing monologue <laughs> <laughs> we were doing um you and i an interview for the radio times the other week because mm. uh, the adam and joe show is now available to view on Britbox. oh all four yeah. series and so wow. we were doing an interview about that. And it was a strange experience because it was the first time in, well, 
25 years that we, or thereabouts, that you and I had uh, done an interview about the Adam and Joe show. And it was it was strange how we slotted back into our respective roles and started trotting out the same patter that we used to when we were interviewed about it in the late 90s and early 2000s. Except that at one point point you said, I finished making quite a good point about how the whole DIY aesthetic was important to me because it was a a gesture towards kind of decentralizing the power of television and all that. Anyway, it was a great little speech I made. And at the end, you said with the Radio Times interviewer, Yes, I remember you saying that in the 90s when we were interviewed, and it's still as boring to hear you say it now as it was then. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and your point is? (laughs) Where are you going with this? I don't know. Where am I going with this? I don't think, didn't I say that? I think, yeah, I, I think I set you up for it, actually. And then you followed on by sort of repeating it, and then I shut you down. Yeah. To move things on. That's how we do it. But it all sounds good. I'm really looking forward to Ramble Book 2, even if it never appears. How about, uh, I need some stories, stories for the sequel. What are the big stories that I didn't write about in the first one, uh, about us in the 90s, that, that I can tell? Well, you could do everything, couldn't you? Like, Takeover TV was weird for me. Because it was basically your gig. Mm -hmm. And I was working in film as a runner, but feeling very frustrated that I was sort of, you know, so near but yet so far to doing film. And then you got this uh, offer to present TakeOver TV. So you really got the break to actually be making stuff that was going to be... I'd had a couple of short films broadcast, but like at midnight on a Sunday on BBC Two and stuff. But in terms of actually being on television before midnight, (laughs) you got that opportunity first. So that was certainly weird for me. And uh, I remember sitting down with you in a cafe in Brixton, probably, and full of all sorts of weird feelings of, uh, you know, competitiveness and um, just peculiarity that this was what had happened and also trying to think well you could because i you know surprise surprise had quite highfalutin ideas of uh being a filmmaker and then the opportunity that arose was not necessarily as uh dignified as um <laughs> you know one might not that's the wrong word dignified but you know not as sort of um you had to slum it with buckles being my sidekick for a while and well, it, it was quite and that must not, have been no that was very i felt very privileged but but it was talking bottoms, wasn't it? I mean, both of us on takeover TV. Yeah, I didn't both do of any. Us felt a little bit no, but the, some of the stuff on there was like yeah, not necessarily what you would want, what your parents would want you to <laughs> <laughs> aspire to. So you really had to think like, okay, well, just the opportunity to put anything on is is so valuable. Yes, whatever it's uh, whatever it is. But yeah, that's I guess that's where that would have started for me. That's interesting. It's just a weird situation. It was a very unusual situation to be producing stuff for broadcast television entirely on our own. Mm. Very unusual in that year, in those years. But did you have to give yourself a pep talk or did someone else give you a pep talk and say, hey, look, I know this is not exactly what you want to be doing. You want to be making films, not making weird late night trashy TV, but... This is a foot in the door. This is an opportunity. You've got to yeah, go yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I made it. I absolutely made a decision because I, I chucked in my job. Right. But I do think the any conflict or weirdness probably grew out of the fact that it was basically your gig. Like you are, you answered the advert in the NME. You got asked by World of Wonder to present the show. Right. And then you came to me and said, help me out, man. And so it was, it was, it was always a little bit weird as to, you know, um, who's steering the ship. Yeah. Who's driving the bus. It always was weird. And there was inevitably just because of, it's not as if we were a band that had been gigging and the band was suddenly signed. It was almost like we were a band and you were the lead singer and you got signed 
and then you came to the band and said you came to like the bassist or the drummer or whatever and said uh listen help me help me out i need you to play with me on this thing yeah so that was probably the that was probably the source of it i never thought i was a presenter i always was a director and a writer and a sort of behind the scenes person even when we did plays and stuff but the annoying thing was that you were better at presenting than i was probably oh i don't think so that's the thing is that part of the sort of skewed power dynamic thing was me being desperate to on the one hand maintain any idea that i was driving this thing or i got us this gig but underlying all that was just this kind of chronic insecurity about oh, i haven't really got the goods for this and joe's a lot more funny yeah, but it happened very suddenly, didn't it? We didn't exactly. I mean, we had a bit of a a bit of a run up doing takeover TV, but it did happen very fast. Before we knew it, we were being asked to fill twenty five minutes on Channel Four, made of our own stuff, and this is obviously before YouTube and before creators really were as uh, common as they are now. Well, that sort of thing is is sort of um, around more, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't think I think we can we can forgive each other and ourselves a certain amount of uh, psychological, you know, um, wrangling just given the given the circumstances. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff I can never forgive you for, (laughs) but I'm going to write about it. Good. Okay, (laughs) I'm ready. Yeah. No, there's going to be there's going to be gnarly, long passages of uh, very bitter complaining. Yeah. And as much name dropping as I can manage. Yes. Like, who are the big name drops that we could do? I remember bumping into Ewan McGregor mm-hmm. at at a gig in Brixton. I think it was, uh, who was it? Maybe Blur or Beck. I think it was Beck we went to see mm. towards the end of the 90s. And Ewan McGregor was over at the bar. And we had just done a parody of Trainspotting with toys that was the first thing on our first show wasn't it that's right yeah and i went over to say hello to ewan mcgregor and said we did a thing on train spotting on our telly show didn't say it like that and he'd seen it mm. he said yeah it was great i thought wow we have bust through into some other realm here you do a name drop the first pop star we met was um baby bird was Baby Bird, and we were terrified. Yeah. Like, in retrospect, comparatively speaking, he's a brilliant musician, but he wasn't that famous. Stephen Jones, he was very much a cult concern who had sort of busted through into at least the margins of the mainstream. He was an NME hero. Super hot at the time, but we were terrified. When we met him, he was just at the point where he was going to become a proper mainstream star for a while, I think. Because I don't think You're Gorgeous, which was his big chart hit, had come out when we met him. He just released four EPs or four albums of homemade stuff. And he got quite irritated, I remember, when we were asking him about outsider artist type. Like, we we played him some Shuby Taylor. Mm. And we used Shuby in the theme tune for the Adam and Joe show. And he, he bristled. You know, he, he didn't like that people would assume he was into that sort of stuff, you know, just because he did homemade stuff. He's like, no, 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 I'm I'm trying to make my stuff as good as possible. This is just ridiculous what you're playing me. You know what I mean? I do know. I do know what you I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I remember that as being quite an excruciating sesh, though, because of our general levels of internal anxiety. Oh, yeah. We were so nervous. We met him at the Chrysalis in the yes. Chrysalis building, you remember? It just everything seemed so... Anything that was, like, official or part of um, mainstream media was terrifying to us, wasn't it? Because we were just a couple of um, homemade ninnies. And we I just felt like a ninny. Yeah, but also I didn't have the... I didn't have the... Like, I really cared. And I think the best thing is is not to care. Like, I cared in a bad way. Yeah. I was very self-conscious. And mm. so that made the whole prank element that crept mm. into the Adam and Joe show very... Very difficult. Tell me about it. Traumatic. Tell <laughs> me about it. Write about it. Tell me about it in Ramble Book 2. Well, I'm going to. I've already started writing that. Have you? Yeah. Shall I read you a little bit of what I've written about Yes. That? This is the preview of Ramble Book 2 that... Wow, this we is work in about. progress. Yeah, it's exciting. 
Sometimes Louis Theroux would suggest ideas for things he thought we should have a go at, and one of these ended up being in the first ever episode of The Adam and Joe Show. We went into a food store on Brixton High Street, and I filmed as Joe opened any package that advertised 20% free, emptying 20% of the contents into his pockets, then putting what remained back on the shelves. It wasn't long before we were approached by shop assistants asking what we were doing, to which Joe replied, It's okay, we're just taking the free stuff. Our producer Debbie had got us permission to film in the shop from the owner, but his staff had not been warned, so their bewildered responses were genuine. When a few onlookers got involved and the mood shifted from bewilderment to anger, we called the owner who emerged from his office to reassure staff and customers that it was all a hilarious prank, whereupon we made our grateful apologies and went back to the office to review our footage. There was just about enough to cobble a piece together, but a lot of what I'd shot was unusable because my hands had been shaking so badly. The thing is, I'm not a huge fan of pranks and practical jokes. Maybe that's because I'm really nice and don't enjoy exploiting another person's goodwill for a laugh. Or maybe it's because I'm a conformist coward who feels threatened whenever the rules of society are disrupted. Or maybe it's both. And then I have a ramble, like a little tangential ramble, Mm. about Stanley Milgram. Do you know him? Uh, Tell me who he is. He was responsible for the electrocution experiments that tested uh, obedience Mm. there's a book about him called the man who shocked the world do you want to hear my ramble about stanley milgram i don't know yeah you're smiling so i feel i'll hurt you if i say no (laughs) if it's shit i can just look up on wikipedia i don't really care ramble in the early 70s dr stanley well i'm getting the milligram bit milgram Uh, i'm getting the milgram bit Yeah, you're getting the Milgram bit. I tried to stop it. In the early 70s, Dr. Stanley Milgram conducted an experiment in which he instructed his students to board a subway train in New York and ask someone to give up their seat, though there was no obvious reason for them to do so. You might imagine that most people would refuse, especially on the New York subway in the 70s. Surprisingly, though, around two-thirds of New York subway passengers gave up their seats willingly when asked to do so by Milgram's students. The results of the experiment demonstrated that the average person tends to be either more obedient or just nicer than you'd expect. Either way, the people affected most dramatically by the experiment were not the seated subway passengers, but Milgram's students. Deliberately disrupting these social codes was so upsetting that many of them felt physically sick and i conclude unless you're a sociopath pranking whether done in the name of entertainment or academic study is painful that's what i liked about that eric andre film bad trip oh yeah that the majority of the pranks in it actually showed the general public in a very good light yes exactly the majority of the time they're trying to diffuse the situation or make the person who is comically suffering feel better bad trip I thought really made me feel all the, the vast majority of it made me feel really warm and cuddly and uh, that human beings generally were good, which is um, what Milgram found out. Exactly. And the, uh, the great thing about Eric Andre is that the joke is always generally on him. He's the disruptive element and it's about how people react to it. You know, it's not all about humiliating people or making them look credulous or stupid. Mm. It's about like, look at me, I'm totally out of control. And yeah, how are you going to react to this big dose of absurdist chaos being uh, unleashed in front of you? Yeah, because the second prank idea of Louis that we did, you talked about before, you break it, you pay for it. That's what I carry on and write about later on. Yeah, so that's the sort of example of when the scales tip too far in the wrong direction (laughs) Uh, when you're doing something that's genuinely um horrible yeah horrible well no it was it was it wasn't meant to be horrible so this was a prank where we went into a shop that had a sign it was a china shop uh in south london and it had a sign that said you break it you pay for it so we went in and deliberately broke things Mm. Uh, and then paid for them but the lady who was in there minding the shop we'd you know we'd arranged this with the guy that owned the shop but the 
lady in there operating the till was quite upset and frightened by these Rightly people coming so. in, smashing stuff up. The claw hammer was a mistake. The claw hammer was a mistake. Yeah, that was a miscalculation. Oh, it was terrible. Oh, it was much more fun just doing silly stuff like People Place. Yes. I just like just being silly and confusing and odd. Anyway, well, there you go. That's quite. That's a little preview of some of the amazing stuff that might go in Ramble Book yeah. 2 as far as uh, our show went. But also Adam and Joe show related as this is a nostalgic Adam and Joe show ramble. I am, of course, auctioning some incredibly rare and valuable Adam and Joe memorabilia in, uh, well, as this goes out, it'll probably be next week. Wow. What have you got? What's in the in the booty bucket? The Buckles booty bucket. Can I call it that? That would be great. Okay. What's in the Buckles booty bucket? Buckles booty bucket. Let me check. I mean, I've got crates of shit. Crates of shit. Yeah. And since we moved house, we've been slowly rationalizing everything. And it's the last corner of the last cupboard to be rationalized is Cornball's uh, cornucopia of um, crusty crap. From our careers. Mm. And what do you think the most valuable item you have is? What, Adam and Joe related? Yeah, or anything. Oh, man. Well, a lot of my old magazines are actually quite valuable, like copies of Grand Royal at Beastie Boys magazine. Old zines, Ben is Dead, stuff like that are actually quite valuable. Cause really? looking them up on the internet. Yeah. yeah. Like for how, how much? Like, I'm only talking like £100, that sort of thing. That's quite a lot. That's for quite a, a lot for an old thing. A worthless mag. <laughs> worthless old mag. <laughs> um, I was going to auction off my mm. sailor's hat and T-shirt. Oh, my God. Wow. That's probably got Buckle's DNA in it. That's got a load of DNA cloned. in it. Yeah. Yeah, sweat. Anxiety sweat. Yeah, rage sweat. Anxiety. Rage. Cornballs-induced rage sweat. <laughs> Cornballs-induced rage sweat. Uh, prank sweat. Shame sweat. You know, that is the most delicious of all sweat. Like if anybody um, buys that, they should just strain some hot water through it and sip it. Mm, You'll be taken back to those uh, angst ridden days. Mm, Relaxing. What do you think I'm going to get for the sailor hat and T-shirt? That is I mean, that is a piece of iconic memorabilia from a legendary cult TV show. (laughs) Well, there's a couple of ways it could go. I'd say one way it could go is that you get its actual worth, which is probably about a tenner. But it's more likely to be somebody who actually wants to give money to charity, who's prepared to inflate the sum as a generous, as an act of generosity. As a gesture. Yeah, as a gesture, which that sometimes happens in charity raffles, doesn't well, I'm, it? That's what I'm counting on. Yeah. Yeah, they want to support Médecins Sans Frontières. And all I the... mean, maybe I should buy it so I'd have the full set, because obviously I've got the Joe T-shirts. So there's the sailor hat and T-shirt. There is um, my Star Wars Jabba the Hutt model that turned up in many of our toy movies. And it also turned up in an episode of Travel Man with Richard Ayawadi when I went with Richard to um, Lisbon. Also, vinyl justice items, a helmet with a record on top, notepad and badge from the American version of vinyl justice on VH1. Wow. And then there's a few toys from the toy movies. Oh. I would imagine that you've got most of the toys who appeared in your toy movies. However, I do have your Steven Spielberg from Saving Private Lion. Do you? Am I allowed to auction him off? Of course. I've got the wonky house. Have you got the wonky house? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've got the wonky house. That's I've got from Chewbacca's our... wonky house from Chew've Been Framed. Chew've Been Framed. <laughs> it's spinning around really fast and bits are flying off it. Say it, say it, say it like you said it before. My wonky house! What's happened to my wonky house? Anyway, I've got the wonky house. <laughs> anyway, I've also got a few toys that were in... Star Trek Next Generation toy movie and uh, the version of Snatch that I did called Twat. And I was trying to figure out if I should sell them as a job lot or individually, probably individually. What do you reckon? Yeah, I reckon. Is there going to be like bartering? Is it like an auction like where you watch the sums go up? Yeah, it'll be on eBay. 
So, so at the end of the show, all the items have gone. No, after the show, there will still be a day or two for people to make bids. Right. Yeah, like international, like oil billionaires. Yeah. Uh, Australian billionaires. Elon Musk. When the word gets out. And as this podcast goes out, the idea is that if you go to my website, adam-buxton.co.uk, on the front page should be details and links to the... um, auction going on on ebay and uh, there will be details of when the live stream is happening where i just talk a little bit more maybe show a few clips relating to some of the items what time of day is that going to happen that is going to be seven thirty on tuesday the 18th of may prime time yeah tuesday the 18th of may seven thirty p.m Another couple of items that I have which are not Adam and Joe related are two of the helmets that I used for the Radiohead video for Jigsaw Falling Into Place that I directed with Garth Jennings in 2007. And they're bike helmets sprayed silver with a dowling pole in the front. This is pre-GoPro technology. And they are both signed by Johnny Greenwood and Tom York. One of them, the camera is still working, the little black and white security camera. Wow. It's probably got some uh, hairs trapped in it. Again, very good for a Jurassic Park-style DNA That's right. extraction if you want to do a, some sort of a Tom York theme park with clones of Tom York in big pens. Yeah. What would happen if the power went down in that one and they all escaped? <laughs> <laughs> Love fucking mind-bending music and some arguments. We can't get modern angst back online but that's going to make that item very 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 valuable probably just from a scientific point of view and it's a little irresponsible to uh sell it to the public really because you don't know what hands it might fall into you know Mm -hmm. uh in terms of villains and what they would do with the tom york clone just i'm just saying be careful with it what else have you got that's non adam and joe uh Uh, i have a bit of hot fuzz memorabilia Wow. So I've got, because I was, in 2006, I got the part of Tim Messenger. And for anyone who hasn't seen that film, uh, spoiler, I get killed by a the spire of a church going through my head. And they built a, a, a big reproduction of A. Buckles. And uh, with a prosthetic head, they did a cast of my head and blew it up. And on the day where they did the special effect and exploded the head and lots of gore came out everywhere, I went around and I collected up bits of the exploded head. And I've got quite a good chunk of the face, which still looks weirdly like me. They did it twice. They did the special effect twice. So I got a nose from the first one, which really blew up and there wasn't much left of that one. But the second one, when it blew up, there was most of the face. So I have the the face from the exploded Tim Messenger model in a plastic bag. with It's still got bits of hair and fake blood on it. And mm. and I have the um, the name of my character laminated and put you know that went on my dressing room door when we were on location in wells Mm. and i have the call sheet and all the like the list of all the shots and when they were done all the when all the shots were done on that film and i okayed it with edgar he said it was all right to auction this stuff so what do you reckon hundreds of pounds for that exploded tim messenger face well yeah that sort of stuff does fetch uh, big money they have auctions of uh, movie props like that oh yeah and people spend thousands of pounds. But it's recognisable as you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Is it mountable in some sort of glass case or is it too is it too bitty? Uh, it's a bit bitty, McLean. You could, I tell you what you could do. Go on then. You could take it to the repair shop. <laughs> Adam Buxton has bought the fragments of his face from the film Hot Fuzz. This was the peak of his acting career and it holds many fond memories. He brings it to Charlene, the face reconstruction expert. She will attempt to put it back together. Hello, Adam. What have you got for me here? You're, you be you. You be you. Uh, this is the prosthetic of my face that was exploded in the film Hot Fuzz. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, it's very, it's very fragmented. Um, can you tell me what it means to you? Well, it was 
my one of my first film roles and one of my last as well. And uh, they took the cast of my face, of my whole head, in fact, when I was quite hungover one day in 2006. And I remember when I saw the the dummy of my character, Tim Messenger, I was sad because I thought, wow, I'm not a very attractive man at all. Adam is going off on a tangent. Hmm. <laughs> well, we'll attempt to put it together. We'll do our best. Uh, thanks very much for bringing it in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. This doesn't mean anything to you. You haven't seen this program. No, it's I can imagine it, though. Repair show. It's very, it's comfort television. How long's that been on? Literally all the time. <laughs> no, <laughs> like for a few years. It's a big hit. Is it? And so then we go into a montage of these lovely experts in this beautiful um, woodland glade in this little rustic hut, working away at your face, stitching it. And every now and then they'll come upon a problem and they'll go over to another of the artisan repairers and lightly touch them on the shoulder and say, hello there, Stefan. Oh, hi. Uh, I got a little problem with the, the stitching on the face. Mm, yeah. Well, just let me have a go at that. I'll do. It's very soft and mm. very gentle. They're very nice to each other. Sounds nice. And they'll stitch the face together and they'll source the exact same rubber <laughs> and they'll get the right eyes. And then a couple of weeks later, you'll park your car half a mile away from the repair shop and then walk down a wooded glade where they'll film you. And you'll bring your daughter and maybe Edgar too or something. Maybe not Edgar. Why am I bringing my daughter? Well, that's what they do on the repair shop. It's very cosy okay. and familial and emotional. And, uh, and you'll come in and they'll have the face with a, a cloth over it. And they'll go, and Charlene will say, hello, Adam. I don't know. These aren't the real names. Hmm. And then she'll take the cover off and they'll be your reconstructed face. Beautifully done, just yeah. as if it was never crushed. Oh. And you'll say, oh, wow. you got to cry. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'll put my, I'll walk around the desk and just give you a little hug. It's say, really amazing to see it again. <laughs> I feel like it's 2006 and all the bad things that have happened in the last few years haven't happened yet. But obviously 9-11's happened and the other things from the past, the bad things in the past, they've happened. But the other future things after 2006, they haven't happened. And that's what this phase means to me. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to work on it. Such a privilege. <laughs> Thanks. Adam. <laughs> Adam leaves with his reconstructed face. He gives it to his daughter who wears it. When she kills tramps. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a um, dark twist. That's a dark twist. Very dark twist, I'm sorry. Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers, so when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited squarespace.com slash Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there. So I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures. I uploaded a video. Before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen The Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton. And I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom. And it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom? And you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Continue. Hey, welcome back, podcats. Joe Cornish there. And uh, speaking of my daughter, I've just remembered I'm supposed to pick her up from cricket today. So I've got to walk back 
quite fast. Otherwise, I'm going to be one of those terrible dads, terrible dads, terrible, terrible, terrible dads that um, turns up really late and their child is the only one that's left sitting on a, a bench looking forlorn and unloved. I mean, you never know. It might end up with her enacting that nightmare scenario that Joe Cornish was outlining there. Anyway, uh, I'm very grateful to Joe for talking to me there, making the time. Thanks, man. Don't forget to check out those links for the auction for MSF. Please explore right now and maybe join me for the live stream on YouTube on Tuesday, May the 18th at 7.30 p.m. And of course, if you haven't read Ramble books so far, why not check out the paperback? Now, I mentioned in my intro that uh, I'd been involved in another feature film, another Edgar Wright feature film, no less. And yeah, this is a little bit of an exaggeration because it's not one of Edgar's uh, narrative features. It is a documentary feature about one of my favourite bands, Sparks. It's called The Sparks Brothers. Edgar's been working on it for a few years now. And it is a comprehensive overview of the career thus far of Ron and Russell Mayle, two of the most unique, consistently surprising and delightful artists in the world of modern music. Zoo time, is she and you time? That's one of their most famous ones. This town ain't big enough for both of us, but in a career that has lasted uh, nearly five decades? No, five decades. They made their debut in 1971, and they just keep on putting out interesting stuff in all kinds of styles across the decades. Uh, They are quite unique, and Edgar, being a longtime fan spotted that no one had really done a doc about them so he thought well I better do it myself and that's what he's done with the aid of many Sparks fans including myself who talk on camera about the band and their influence alongside contributions from the Mail brothers themselves Ron and Russell Mail, who are Sparks check out the brand new trailer for Edgar's film, The Sparks Brothers. Link in the description. See what you think. The film itself is out in cinemas on July the 30th, 2021. Though, says Edgar, our Sundance London Q&A on July 29th will be beamed across the UK the night before opening. All right, that's it for this bonus episode. Thanks once again to Jay Corn. Thanks to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his production support on this episode. Thanks to Acast for their ongoing support. I'll start putting out episodes of the podcast regularly uh, after the summer, probably. But before then, yeah, there might be the odd uh, extra episode coming your way. Until then, I hope you're doing well and you're in a position to... Enjoy the easing of restrictions. Don't go crazy with that hugging, though. We don't want another wave. And anyway, not everyone deserves a hug. But uh, I think you do. Come in. Take care. I love you. Bye!